At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Think about that. A life sentence for writing a bad check for $88 didn't take the deal and he got the life sentence, and the Supreme Court upheld that and said, well, that's just part of the give and take of plea bargaining. Where was the give and take? We see a lot of taking, but we don't see much giving. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and welcome back to our summer series of conversations about writers and books and podcasts and thinkers that are shaping the way we think about justice and the court system. My guest today is one of the people I admire most in the whole entire legal world, Stephen B. Wright, who has tried capital cases before juries in Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, and argued four capital cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of his client in every one of those cases. Three involved race discrimination in jury selection, and the fourth involved the right to a mental health expert for a poor person facing the death penalty. His brand new book, co-authored with James Kwok, was published in June. It's called The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. Steve's book is a searing portrait of the ways in which the criminal justice system fails to live up to the values of equality and justice, particularly for racial minorities, the poor, and the mentally ill. In his foreword to the book, Brian Stevenson describes it as, quote, an urgently needed analysis of our collective failure to confront and overcome racial bias and bigotry, the abuse of power, and the multiple ways in which the death penalty's profound unfairness requires its abolition, end quote. Steve Bright teaches law at Yale and Georgetown Universities. He was director of the Southern Center for Human Rights, and he lives in Lexington, Kentucky. He's been the subject of two major books, but this is his first book. His co-author is James Kwok, a former professor of law at the University of Connecticut and chairperson of the board of the Southern Center for Human Rights. And listeners, just a quick heads up before the interview begins. This episode contains one graphic description of a violent crime, so do keep that in mind. The section in question comes at about 38 minutes in if you want to skip over it. When you hear Stephen say, long before this rather bizarre crime, well, that's when you may want to hit fast forward for a minute or two if your kids are in the car. Steve, I could not be happier to welcome you to Amicus. Well, I couldn't be happier to be here, Dahlia. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you again. So I think I want to start, if I might, with your epigraph, because it comes from, of all people, Winston Churchill addressing the House of Commons in 1910, and I just want to read it, because for me, I think it really sets the table about where you are. This is what Churchill said in 1910, quote, The mood and temper of the public in regard to the treatment of crime and criminals is one of the most unfailing tests of the civilization of any country. A calm and dispassionate recognition of the rights of the accused against the states and even of convicted criminals against the state 
a constant heart searching by all charged with the duty of punishment and an unfaltering faith that there is a treasure, if you can find it, in the heart of every man. These are the symbols which in the treatment of crime and criminals mark and measure the stored up strength of a nation and are the sign and proof of the living virtue in it. There's so very much there, but I wonder if for me it feels like both a description of all the problems you're about to set forth and maybe a little bit of a prescription for how we can aim to find solutions. Yes, I think so. I mean, unfortunately, we don't live up to those things that uh, Winston Churchill said. And as we point out, we don't live up to one of the key things that the Supreme Court of the United States said, which was there can be no equal justice when the kind of justice a person gets depends upon the amount of money the person has. And of course, we know that nothing matters more in our legal system than the amount of money a person has. And so we know what we need to do, but unfortunately, we just don't seem to be willing to do what it takes to provide a level of justice that, you know, satisfies those things. Before we get to the book, I wonder if you could give us just a tiny bit of a sense of your own journey to this work, because you've been doing it for a very, very long time in, a, in several different capacities. And in many ways, I think you understand the criminal justice system and the race and financial and mental health disparities that infect it. But can you just talk a little bit about what it is that you've observed in your decades doing this work and what brought you to write the book? Sure. I was a lawyer in uh, Washington, D.C. I've been a public defender there, and uh, I and a couple of friends of mine were asked if we would take a death penalty case out of Georgia. And we thought it was somewhat remarkable because we weren't appellate lawyers and we were in D.C., which didn't have the death penalty. And we sort of, why were you asking us? And they said, well, we'll take anybody we can get. We have people facing the death penalty. They don't have lawyers, uh, which seemed, this 1979, uh, it just seemed unimaginable. But we found that, in fact, in Georgia and Alabama, Mississippi, all across the South, people would get a lawyer appointed for their trial and one appeal. And after that, they were on their own. They could appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States to look at their case. They could file in the state courts and the federal courts to challenge their conviction or their death sentence, but they had no right to a lawyer. And so this whole system was sort of held together by volunteer lawyers. And this volunteer in Georgia would call people at law firms or call people like us and ask us to take a case. And we took the case because it just seemed so wrong that this person didn't have a lawyer and sort of braced ourselves thinking we were going to get this big record of this case, which is death penalty case, for goodness sakes. What we got was a very thin envelope uh, with a transcript that we could read that night. It was so short. It was the entire death penalty trial in this case. Uh, it was shocking uh, how uh, perfunctory it was. And uh, then later, we went down and met our client, Donald Wayne Thomas, and he was schizophrenic. He was totally out of touch reality. But none of that had been 
presented to the jury that convicted him and sentenced him to die. In fact, the sentencing phase of his case was nothing but the prosecutor giving an argument to give the death penalty and the defense lawyer giving a sort of generic argument against the death penalty, which was not very smart because, of course, all the jurors had to be willing to impose the death penalty. So that argument wasn't going to resound very well with that jury. And sort of after that, we just started seeing one thing led to another. And um, Judy Haney, one of my clients, the lawyer that represented her, was so intoxicated during her trial that he fell down in the courtroom and had to be taken to jail. And the next day, the lawyer and client were produced from the jail and the trial resumed. Cases in Georgia where people were referred to as a racial slur by their lawyers. Three cases in Houston where lawyers slept during their death penalty trial. The lawyers defending people uh, fell asleep during the trials. And and then we would go around to courtrooms and uh, where a judge was going to hear our death penalty case. But I remember sitting in court and watching people plead guilty to felony cases without lawyers. And it was like, wait a minute, there's something missing here. You have to have a lawyer. You have to, the person is entitled to some advice from a lawyer before they plead guilty. But the only person they talked to was the prosecutor. So I saw a lot of things. I saw politically elected judges and how political they were and and not very rule of law oriented, more politically oriented. And so, you know, we tried to do what we could with regard to the clients that we had and, and then to try to do some larger things as well. So I think you've actually given a synopsis of virtually every chapter in the book, but I I thought we would start, if we could, with race, because it does feel Mm -hmm. as though it touches absolutely every other aspect that you raise. And your very first chapter tells the story or opens with the story of Glenn Ford, a black man sentenced to death in Louisiana in 1984, at a trial where his appointed lawyers were an oil and gas lawyer on the one hand and a recent law school graduate on the other, before an all-white jury, after the prosecutors failed to turn over exculpatory evidence. And Ford was not released, as you note, until 30 years later in March of 2014, when the prosecutors actually admitted they'd never had a case against him, handed him $20, sent him home. He died the next year. He is your avatar in some sense for the 85 people sentenced to death between 1983 and 2020, all of whom were found not to be guilty of the crimes for which they are sentenced. And as you note, 13 of them spent 30 years or more in prison. 12 of the 13 were black. As I was reading this, Steve, I kept thinking of Justice Scalia insisting that no one had ever been executed who wasn't guilty. And this is just so belied by the evidence you amass here. But race is a huge, huge piece of the story. So I wonder if we could start there. Sure. And one thing about Glenn Ford was he had an all-white jury because the prosecutor struck the African-Americans in jury selection to get an all-white jury. And one thing I think many people don't realize is that in this country today, we still have all-white juries, even in communities that have very substantial black or Hispanic populations. And it's because of several things that uh, go into play. But very often in death penalty cases, the people gathered there for jury selection or ask if they have any reservations about the death penalty or opposed to it. Of course, many black people are opposed to the death penalty because it's been used in a racially discriminatory way against black people. So they raise their hand. So you lose a lot of 
the African-American prospective jurors right there, and that often gets the number down to a low enough number. The prosecutor then strikes the ones that are left, and you have an all-white jury. I mean, one of the Supreme Court cases I had was Alan Snyder, who was sentenced to death in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, about 15% African-American at the time. But the prosecutor struck all the African-Americans, five, and he got an all-white jury that sentenced him to death. You know, but we see that in case after case after case. Can you talk a little bit about the title of the book? Because you mentioned that you sort of named it in some sense uh, with Justice Brennan, his dissent in McCleskey versus Kemp in 1987. This was a case about whether states could continue to execute people despite significant racial disparities in capital sentencing. And you say that, you know, Justice Powell wrote in this 5-4 majority that it's fine to do that because, quote, disparities in sentencing are an inevitable part of the criminal justice system. And if the court were to recognize that there was racial discrimination in death sentences, he continues, quote, it could soon be faced with similar claims as to other types of penalty because there's racial disparities in sentencing for all sorts of crimes. And in response, Justice Brennan said that he was afraid that Powell in this case seemed to be afraid of, quote, too much justice. And I wonder if you can unpack what that phrase, too much justice, signals to you in terms of the ways in which we're very, very parsimonious about affording justice to some of the people who need it most. Well, that phrase that Justice Brennan used then in the late 1980s has just resonated with me over and over again. As you said, Justice Powell said, well, if we have to deal with race discrimination, the death penalty, then we'd have to deal with race discrimination in robbery cases and all kinds of other cases. That's pretty much what Justice Powell had said in dissenting when the death penalty was declared unconstitutional in 1972. And the court said there had been this discrimination and the arbitrariness and the way it had been used. And Justice Powell said, well, but yes, that's that's just the way the system works. The poor people and the black people are the people that get the brunt of the system, and we really can't deal with that. And then there was another case, well, actually several, involving jury selection, in which the question was, could you ask prospective jurors about their racial bias? And the court had said yes in a case where race was fundamental, where the person's defense was that he was being prosecuted because of his race. But in another case involving a black man accused of a murder of a white security guard, Powell said, well, we can't allow questioning about race because if we allow questioning about race, then we'd have to allow questioning about all sort of other things. So again, the fear of too much justice. And the interesting thing there is that, you know, 30, 40 years before, uh, when a case was before the Supreme Court and Chief Justice Hughes was deciding the same question, could you ask a juror whether they had any racial bias? And Chief Justice Hughes said, well, it only takes a few minutes to ask the question, and we certainly wouldn't want people to think that people are on the jury who have these kind of racial attitudes. And he cited a number of cases from Mississippi and Georgia where that had been the case. A very different approach, and uh, I think that doesn't speak well of, of Justice Powell or, or the Supreme Court later on with regard to that. 
And some people would say, well, would you really find out anything? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, a man to be executed in Texas, Andre Thomas, the jurors in his case, three jurors answered on a jury questionnaire that they did not believe in interracial marriage, which was really critical in that case because he was African-American and his wife, his ex-wife, was white, and he was accused of the murder of her and two children. So that was critical in the case. And those jurors wrote down, yes, we don't believe in it. We think it religiously. Unfortunately, he was represented by lawyers who were so incompetent that they didn't follow up on it. And two of those jurors actually sat on the case. Steve, one of the things you said in your sort of really comprehensive answer to my first question about what you've seen in your life is very much, I think, the beating heart of the first part of the book, which is prosecutors are running trials, not judges. Judges sort of sit on the sidelines. They have very, very imperfect information. The the entire criminal justice system is kind of happening at the whim of prosecutors. And I think while reading it, it's so clear that that's true, I think it's a little bit counterintuitive for some listeners. So I wonder if you can walk us through the thousand and one ways in which prosecutors kind of at this point are running the show. Well, one of the best examples is a case of a a fellow in Kentucky named Paul Hayes, who was charged with writing a bad check for $88. And the prosecutor told him that if he pled guilty, he'd get five years, which seems like an awfully severe sentence for writing a bad check. But he said, if you don't plead guilty, I'm going to file papers so that you'll be a habitual offender and you'll get a life sentence. I mean, really, think about that, a life sentence for writing a bad check for $88. And Hayes uh, didn't take the deal, and uh, he, he got the life sentence, and the Supreme Court upheld that and said, well, that's just part of the give and take of plea bargaining. And I ask my students every year, where was the give and take? We, we see a lot of taking, but we don't see much giving. I mean, there was no equality in the bargaining situation. And, um, you know, I think of a couple of women who were sentenced to death in Georgia. Kelly Gissendatter was facing the death penalty, and the prosecutor offered her a, a deal, and she didn't take it because she wanted to be eligible for parole 11 years earlier. That was the only disagreement. But she didn't take the deal, and so she goes to trial, and she's sentenced to death. Then many years later, is after she's been a model prisoner and she's done a lot of things and even got a divinity degree. And a lot of people are saying, really, I mean, you didn't, you didn't want the death penalty to begin with. You were willing to give her a, a sentence in which she would have been eligible for parole if she had taken the deal. But the prosecutor said, didn't take the deal. And the price you pay for not taking the deal is she was executed. Uh, it's really remarkable. Uh, but that happens all the time, I'm sorry to say. That's what a trial tax that prosecutors can say that unless you take the deal, unless you take it now, we're really going to hammer you if you go to trial and lose. Of course, if you go to trial and win, you're fine. But as Paul Hayes found out and as Kelly Gissendetter found out, go to trial and you don't succeed and the price you pay is, is uh, maybe your life. We are taking a short break, but before we hear from some of our wonderful sponsors, I wanted to take a moment to thank our Slate Plus listeners for all of their support this year. We know that a lot of you have signed up to access our exclusive bonus segments with Mark Joseph Stern or because you love the freedom to read as many articles as you want on Slate.com, never hitting a paywall, or just because you love listening to all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. 
But the reason we truly appreciate you signing up is that Slate Plus members power the work we do here. We could not do it without you. So thank you. And if you're not a member but you'd like to find out more, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. More now with Stephen Bright, death penalty lawyer and author of the new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. One of the things that you critique about the role of prosecutors is, and you'll make this point later in the book with respect to judges, and I'm just going to quote you to you for a second. You say, the person exercising this enormous power is usually a white man chosen in an election that received little public attention. 95% of the 2,442 elected prosecutors across the country in 2019 were white. 95, I'm reading that again. 73% were white men, even though white men make up only 31% of the population. And then you further note that prosecutors are elected in 45 states. The vast majority run unopposed. No other place in the world elects their prosecutors. So having just told us what asymmetrical power the prosecutor has in the system, can you give us a a, a beat on all the ways in which these elections and the ways that we select prosecutors inflects on the law that is then administered? Well, sure. And I think what happened for so long and what I saw when I went to Georgia, I I took that first case in 1979. I moved to Georgia in 1982 and spent the next 35 years there dealing with death penalty cases all across the South. And what what often you would see was a prosecutor's office where uh, a person was elected. Uh, Their whole persona was the death penalty. I mean, Johnny Holmes, during the time that he was the prosecutor in Houston, Texas, in the early days of the death penalty in the 80s and 1990s, they were sentencing like 10 or 11 people to death every year just in Houston, just in one county, uh, Harris County. And then what would often happen, what I saw uh, so often was the prosecutor might then become a judge. Uh, his chief assistant would then become the prosecutor. And again, most of the time, these offices did not get much attention in terms of it's, it's changed a little bit more recently. But for years, these people would be elected prosecutors. They pretty much designate their successors and they would get elected over and over again. Some people like, uh, you know, the Curtis Flowers case where the prosecutor struck all the African-American Americans in six different death penalty cases. He had been the prosecutor there for 25 years. And uh, and he was striking African-Americans, not just in that one death penalty case, but he was striking African-Americans in any kind of case that went to trial. Not many cases go to trial, but when they do, you would hope that the jury would reflect the community. And unfortunately, more, more time than not, it does not. One of the things I love about this book is that in every section after you outline the problem, you're really very clear in detailing what works, what reforms have worked, you know, what states are doing things to counter some of this. But in in your section on the prosecutors, you start to mention, you know, progressive 
primarily progressive black prosecutors who are running on a platform of reforming the overzealous prosecution problem, doing away with cash bail, deprioritizing drug prosecutions or the death penalty. Sherilyn Eiffel was on the show recently sounding the alarm about state legislatures and governors who are attacking those prosecutors, stripping of them of their powers, particularly, as she noted, female black prosecutors who are just too right. soft on things. And you note in your book that in Orlando, the prosecutor who announced that she would never seek the death penalty prompted the governor to issue an executive order removing murder cases from her office and sending them somewhere else. And the Florida Supreme Court, as you know, upheld that action. This is, I mean, I think one of the things that's sort of striking is we have a fix for this problem. And then we have elected political officials or state Supreme Courts saying, no, 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 we're not going to let you do the fix. Well, that's right. And it has been a huge change, and it shows just how much discretion prosecutors have, and that there have been people like Kim Fox in Chicago and Kim Gardner in St. Louis and uh, Larry Krasner in, in Philadelphia and George Gascon in, um, in Los Angeles who have shown that just with a wave of the hand or signing a pen to paper— don't seek the death penalty. Uh, set up uh, conviction integrity units that look at old cases and determine. I mean, in Krasner's first term, I think there were 25 people, including some who had been sentenced to death, who were found to be absolutely innocent of the cases uh, the, that they had been convicted of and all the misconduct that had gone on there before. Same thing in New Orleans, where so much misconduct went on for years and years and years in that prosecutor's office. Now you have a different approach. You have a civil rights division there which is looking into uh, a lot of the old cases and finding serious uh, miscarriages of, of justice. But there has been a lot of blowback. There have been efforts, of course, with Gascon. There was an effort to recall him. Chase Boudin, who was elected in San Francisco, was recalled. But I would say otherwise, it's pretty interesting that many of these progressive prosecutors have been reelected and continue. Uh, but boy, the kind of justice a person gets can depend very much on the geography of where they're arrested. In one place, they receive one kind of uh, uh, justice, and in another place, it's, it's very different. And just parenthetically, because again, it's sort of in the news right now, but the, the claim that these progressive prosecutors are, quote, soft on crime and that crime rates spike exponentially as soon as they take office is completely fallacious, right? Well, absolutely. And I think what we've seen is uh, in, in places uh, sometimes uh, a reallocation of resources to where hopefully they'll do more good. You know, pursuing the death penalty, there's a case in Georgia uh, right now, the fellow, a tragic case where the fellow killed all these people at these spas, these Asian people in Cherokee County. They resolved the case with life imprisonment without any possibility of parole. But in Fulton County, Atlanta, they're seeking the death penalty. Now, here's somebody who's got life imprisonment without any possibility of parole. He's out of the community. He's never going to be able to hurt anyone for the rest of his life. Really want to spend three or four years and literally millions of dollars to pursue the death penalty in that case when there's very little likelihood it'll ever be carried out, assuming that it's imposed. A lot of these prosecutors are seeing, let's be smart about this. Let's put our efforts into getting people off the streets that ought to be off the streets, but not uh, arresting everybody for traffic citations and inability to pay fines and fees and keeping people in prison or jail, excuse me, because they can't 
can't pay for bond. And it's a fair system. And I think it's a system where people have more confidence in the criminal courts and more confidence in their fairness. Because when you're treating people really unfairly and you have these all-white juries and this continuing race discrimination, the courts don't appear to be very legitimate or very credible to the people in the community. And very often, it's the people who are hurt the most by crime who are disregarded, I'm afraid, by some of the O-line prosecutor's offices. One of the things you, again, mentioned up top is that, you know, we're supposed to be treating a rich man and a poor man alike, and yet being indigent is one of the single greatest predictors, not just that your trial experience will be unfair, but as you just noted, that you are going to be soaked by the criminal justice system at every turn. And, you know, it's interesting because you make the same point that Adam Cohen, I think, makes in his book, which is actually the Supreme Court was on a trajectory to try to afford poor defendants meaningful protections in the criminal justice system. And then, you know, as you note, uh, after President Nixon's appointments to the court, it just became clear that that was not going to be a priority. And I wonder if you tell us a little bit about how that plays out. In other words, why it is that being poor almost guarantees that you cannot have access to a fair criminal process. Well, unfortunately, the right to a lawyer uh, for poor people accused of crimes is an unfunded mandate. And in many places, we talked earlier in the, in the show about Glenn Ford in Louisiana. There's still people in Louisiana who are assigned lawyers who are divorce lawyers or tax lawyers or whatever, maybe who are drafted to represent poor people just to process them through the courts. In Louisiana, in the same state, there were a lot of suggestions there that the representation that people received was was so bad, and yet that is a real example of the fear of too much justice, the fear that if we really had well-funded public defender offices, that if those offices were independent, if they were client-centered so that they were trying to do the best they could and give a zealous representation to clients— I think some people think, well, it, it might be too hard to get convictions. The system wouldn't operate the way it does today with, I mean, one thing we talk a lot about, particularly with the low-level crimes, is this sort of assembly line justice where people come to court, meet a lawyer for five minutes, plead guilty, get a sentence, and you, you go to court. They call them meet them and plead them. You see these people meeting a lawyer, talking to the lawyer for, like I said, five or 10 minutes, pleading guilty, often put on probation, but they're just being set up to fail because if we put on probation and said, all right, you got to pay this fine. Well, they have no money, so they can't pay the fine. We'll let you pay the fine on the installment plan, but we'll assign you to a private probation company, which will charge you $45 a month just to collect your installment. You know, you're given 12 months to pay, but you have to pay $45 every month. And a lot of times, particularly for people who are very poor, they owe more at the end of the year than they did at the start because they can't pay the fine and they can't pay the private probation fee. You know, these are courts of profit. They're, they're not courts of justice. And that's something that's got to change. So that dovetails phenomenally well with your later chapter about for-profit private prisons, <laughs> which also benefit immensely uh, from making sure that people are incarcerated for a really, really long time. 
It's just like a hotel. You want to have every, you want to have every bed filled. And of course, those companies want to uh, lobby the legislature to be sure, uh, and lobby everyone else for that matter to be sure that people are being arrested, prosecuted, and sentenced so that all their beds are full. So in your sections of the book where you talk about being indigent and the ways in which poverty really hampers you in the systems, I think one of the things that you say is, and here you quote former Attorney General Bobby Kennedy in 1963, quote, the poor man charged with crime has no lobby. You note that for decades upon decades, the ABA has been warning that this system, the criminal justice system, is catastrophically failing our indigent defendants. There's a fix for this, as you observe, but it's almost entirely reliant on better funding for public defender services. And there is no public will for that. And as you note in multiple different strands of the book, there's an enormous public will for funding being extra punitive, harder and harder and harder on crime. So I guess my question to you is, how do you generate a sort of public will for the notion that it would be a better criminal justice system if people got the commensurate amount of justice as rich people? I think there are two things. Part of it's education and part of it's leadership. I think one reason that Georgia, we started filing lawsuits and issuing reports about how bad things were in Georgia. One of the things we showed, for example, was a man named Samuel Moore who was arrested for loitering. That's just standing around. Our uh, investigator, actually, it wasn't an investigator, it was a, a Dartmouth intern, was uh, working in our office, and she found him in the jail 13 months later. He had never seen a judge. He'd never seen a lawyer. Actually, when she went to the courthouse to find out why he was in jail, the charges had been dismissed four months earlier, but nobody had told the jail to let him go. So here you had this poor man who literally spent 13 months in jail for nothing, absolutely nothing. There was a case in Georgia that went to trial where they discovered on the second or third day of trial that the defendant who was sitting at counsel table was not the person whose case was being tried. The sheriffs had brought the wrong person to the courtroom, and the lawyer didn't know his client well enough to realize that this was not the person whose case was being tried. Well, after those things and a lot of other things equally bad— uh, there was was a real effort on the part of the judiciary and the bar in Georgia to do something about it, create a public defender system, which in 2003 they did. Unfortunately, though, to sustain it, there has to be funding, there has to be independence, things like that, which unfortunately uh, have not been provided uh, in Georgia. And in some other places, uh, of course, that hasn't happened at all. Uh, leadership. I mean, one thing that happened in Georgia was the chief justice said in one of his speeches to the legislature, he said, we've set our sights on the embarrassing target of mediocrity. And he said, that's about halfway. Uh, and in my opinion, halfway justice is really no justice at all. I thought he nailed it. I thought that was about, although he was a, he was a real kind in saying that they had set their sights on mediocrity. I don't think they had set it anywhere near that high. But you know, went to the legislature and went to the bar over and over and said something has to be done. But that hasn't happened in a lot of other places. And so we still have a lot of places where people are just really not represented at all. One of the big problems we have all around the country today is people are arrested and sit in jail for a long time before they ever see a lawyer, the dead zone, as they call it. 
Uh, well, the most important thing, if you're going to have a fair system, is for a person upon being arrested to meet a lawyer and be interviewed and have an opportunity to, so the lawyer can see, are the, are the charges valid? Can a person get out on bail? Can the person go back to work? Because if you get out on bail, you can, you can go back to work, keep your job. Maybe the charges will be dismissed. But if you stay in jail for six months, your life is just going to crumble. Unfortunately, that's happening in, in quite a few states right now. Time now for a brief break. Let's return to my conversation with Stephen Bright. In your sort of litany of things that are worrisome to you, you do land upon judges and particularly elected judges and the funding that goes into judicial elections that can be in the millions. And that's a, a relatively new phenomenon. And I wonder if, you know, you, you said this uh, up top that it actually hampers the public perception of an independent judiciary to have folks who are stumping on the proposition that this is how they're going to treat criminal cases. Can that be unrolled or are we just, you know, closing the barn door at this point after the horse has left? How would you even begin to reimagine seating judges so that they weren't making promises. Again, the asymmetry suggests that all the pressure is upon them to be tougher and tougher and tougher on crime in their campaigns. How do we fix that part? Well, as we talk about in the book, before she joined the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor proposed an approach in, in Arizona uh, to have merit selection of judges and have a committee appointed by different people, recommend people to the governor who then makes an appointment, and the people stand for retention election. And that at least has a lot of promise, although recently the governor of Arizona completely packed the Arizona Supreme Court by packing the committee that made the recommendations. But the idea was that it, it wouldn't operate like that. After she left the court, Justice O'Connor devoted really the rest of her life to trying to persuade other states to take a similar approach or at the very least to do something like quit having party elections where the judges run as Democrats and Republicans. And she didn't get anywhere. I mean, I think she herself admitted that uh, she just didn't get anywhere. Sort of with your earlier point about prosecutors, after a number of black women got elected judge in uh, Houston in Harris County, the year that Beto O'Rourke uh, ran for the Senate, there was a big turnout in Harris County and Democrats. So all these Democrats got swept onto the bench in Harris County, not the rest of the state. Well, then before long, you had Governor Abbott talking about, well, maybe we shouldn't elect judges anymore. By the same token, in Las Vegas, you had several public defenders got elected judge there and the prosecutor, well, maybe we shouldn't be electing judges anymore. Uh, but that's not going to end um, judicial elections. I, I think that's a, a real uh, great problem because you have judges literally will go to these law firms and to meetings and, and people will give money and it's clear who's giving it and we know how much. And, and unfortunately, the other thing is that while a lot of this is the business community and the plaintiff's bar and all that, or who's really fighting over who gets to be judges. The commercials usually are all about crime and who's soft on crime and how many death penalties the judge handed down. And uh, they show pictures of the judge, you know, slamming the gavel down and sending somebody to sending somebody to death. The predicament that you put judges in is that if the judge does the right thing and follows the law in a case, uh, she or he may be signing their own political death warrant. Uh, 
because, you know, one case, I, I give several examples of judges who just one case was blown all out of proportion. I mean, Penny White in Tennessee uh, voted off the court only because the Republican Party and a, and a hard right interest group took this one case, didn't even describe it very fairly because the court had upheld the conviction, just set aside the death sentence, sent it back. He was resentenced to death. Uh, but if you read the the material that was sent out, it was that he was allowed to go free, which would have really been something. But it wasn't true. It wasn't what happened. But these elections are are decided often on misinformation like that, but very much on, you know, who can be the toughest on crime. And that's not good for the judiciary. So here I'm going to just confess that the hardest sledding for me was the section on mental illness and the criminal justice system, particularly when it intersects with uh, capital punishment and the death penalty. So I wonder if you'd give us just a sense after a long career of watching how mental illness becomes part of this really corroded system, uh, because then I'm going to ask you for a Hopi question because I'm feeling a little blue right now. <laughs> Well, I mentioned earlier Andre Thomas's case. It's it's one of the saddest cases I've ever seen. It was a man who usually the onset of schizophrenia is in late teenage uh, years. He was hearing voices when he was a child. He had been found mentally ill over and over again uh, long before this very bizarre crime that he committed where he killed his his wife and these children and cut out their hearts and put them in different pockets and thought the devil was requiring him to do it and tried to kill himself, uh, but he survived. He read in the Bible that if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, and he gouged his right eye out. Uh, this was before trial. After he was on death row, he apparently read something else and gouged out his other eye and, and ate it, swallowed it. Uh, so he's completely blind and profoundly mentally ill, and yet the state of Texas wants to execute him. And, you know, we see that all the time, unfortunately. I think increasingly today, many of the people being sentenced to death are people who are mentally ill who, who didn't take the plea bargain because they were mentally ill and couldn't sort of process the choice that they had to make uh, with regard to it. But unfortunately, the courts are, are not very good. Uh, at dealing uh, with mental disorders, particularly people who have mental disorders who have done something really terrible. All the sympathy just goes away. But unfortunately, there are people who are very, very profoundly uh, mentally ill, and we need to deal with them in a more constructive way earlier in their life so we don't get to where we, where we are with many of these people facing execution now. And it seems to me that's also a function of money. Right. Of being willing to oh, yes. put ample, ample, meaningful resources into a system that we know, as you know, we know what works, uh, but we're not willing to fund it. Well, the deinstitutionalization of the mental health or the mental hospitals in the early 60s uh, was supposed to be because we're going to have community mental health centers for people. And we're going to maintain people in the community. The psychotropic drugs are amazing. It's wonderful what they can do and all that. And so we reduced the hospital capacity almost to nothing, put all these people out. Some people got along really well. And some people, particularly people that had families that sort of could help them out, could, could do pretty well. But unfortunately, 
Uh, there are some people who were very profoundly mentally ill, who didn't respond well to medication when their families couldn't deal with them because they're afraid of them or whatever. There weren't any mental facilities to help them, so they call the police. And so we end up dumping all of these mentally ill people into the criminal courts. And I always say that the largest mental institution in any community is the local jail. Uh, all these mentally ill people there, some there on minor things, misdemeanors, people who unlawfully enter buildings they've been told not to go into. But sometimes there are very serious cases. And... Um, uh, again, if we had things in the community, if we could try to maintain people better on their medication, uh, we could avoid a lot of the tragedy that we have. But unfortunately, we, we don't have the capacity for that, and there doesn't seem to be the will to do something about it. Every time there's a big mass shooting, people talk about doing something about mental health, but don't ever do anything very, very significant. Okay. Steve, I warned you that the last question was going to be about hopefulness. Um, and I think I want to read to you from Brian Stevenson's really beautiful forward to your book, where he says, quote, during my first year of law school, I began to doubt whether becoming a lawyer made sense. Almost everyone I met seemed to have a more abstract, less practical notion of what lawyers could and should do to help the poor and the most vulnerable people in society, the curriculum and discourse often focused on the powerful and the privileged, I began to fear that the generation of lawyers who came into my racially segregated community and changed thing when I was a child were no more, end quote. He then follows up by saying that meeting you changed everything for him. And I wonder what you tell your law students and the law students who are listening to this show who really do feel that they are caught up in this sort of intractable, hopeless machinery of justice that delivers injustice more often than not if you are poor or black or, as you said, mentally ill. What gives you hope and what do you tell young people who, you know, having maybe listened to a conversation in which you said in several fronts, we know how to fix this, it's just no one wants to do it. Uh, what should they be doing? Well, I tell my students in the very first class, I say, this is going to be really tough. We're going to have a lot of hard things that we're going to deal with here. But I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to take it as a challenge. I want everything you hear about in this course for you to take as a challenge of what we can do about it. And we look at things like the Washington Supreme Court, the state of Washington, which declared the death penalty unconstitutional under the state constitution because of race discrimination. We look at public defenders that in places like the Bronx or Washington, D.C. or Colorado or a number of other places around the country where there really are public defender offices. We look at New Orleans where public defender office has been fighting. And that's really ground zero for the right to counsel where treated horribly by the judges and tremendous amount of resistance, but dedicated people have gone there. Uh, we just have to, uh, you know, the most important thing is what can we do for the individual client the individual case in the in the in a particular community, and we just have to take it community by community and and person by person, and try to achieve a level of justice that you know we have to have racially diverse juries, uh, we have to have prosecutors, we have to disclose all the information so that the the defense is not in the dark, the prosecution doesn't have this tremendous advantage. We have to have obviously well resourced independent public defenders. All of those things. Uh, look at Miami, at the way 
tremendous work that's been done there with regard to the mentally ill and having this huge mental facility, training police officers, all the police departments in, in Dade County being trained about how to deal with mentally ill people. And instead of having them go to jail, they're going to this program there. These places are there. We know what's there. It's just the will to do it. And it really is the fear of, of too much justice. Stephen Bright teaches law at Yale and Georgetown Universities, lucky students. He was director of the Southern Center for Human Rights and lives in Lexington, Kentucky. And this is his very first book. And uh, Steve, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. And just for the, this work that you do, which, as you said, is really hard, uh, but ultimately it's really essential. So thank you for spending time with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our Senior Director of Operations. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Until then, take good care.